Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much once again. Uh, we pray that you'd be with us and uh, continue to be our, our instructor, our teacher, and lead us to truth is our prayer and desire. We ask all this in your name. Amen. All right. So we're going to start off with something as simple as which translation, uh, Bible translation, uh, should you use? And I'm not going to make that decision for you. That's your decision and your uh, prerogative. I'm just going to provide some principles and some uh, knowledge base so that you can make a better decision, a, a more informed decision on which translation uh, to choose. As a matter of fact, I think, hold on one second. Yes. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much. Let there be sound. All right, so which translation? And there are some considerations that we need to factor in, in, in choosing a translation. The first one would be the purpose, right? You're not going to uh, read from the, 60, uh, you know, the 1700th edition of the King James Version as you do uh, Bible readings for your seven-year-old uh, child, right? And so the purpose uh, plays a key role. Are you going to, is your purpose to delve deeply into a Bible study? And um, uh, so uh, the question you want to ask is, is which translation is best for whom? Uh, or what, what is the best translation for what? What purpose uh, or, or your audience? Uh, etc. So that's what we mean by purpose. The second one uh, factor is manuscript uh, reliability. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that once we get into the KJV discussion. But does the translation utilize the most reliable findings of, the, of all the available Greek manuscripts? And let me just go ahead and, and, and state right off the bat that many of the uh, modern translations like your NASB or your ESV, the English uh, Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, when they, uh, their text, the Greek text that they're drawing upon is not necessarily just uh, one manuscript. Um, we don't really have one manuscript that, that has everything, but they're drawing upon multiple Greek uh, texts and and these textual uh, textual scholars, what they're doing is they're comparing and contrasting, and they're attempting to have the most accurate what they believe uh, is the most accurate word or phrase, uh, etc. That is most likely the original words of the original author. Uh, because as you know, we don't have the original documents of the original Bible writers. So uh, based on these, this eclectic, we call the an eclectic uh, Greek text, where they combine, uh, write out a Greek Bible, but they combine their best 
uh, readings or, or best uh, assumptions on what is the best readings, and they, they factor all those things and make a composite Greek Bible. And based off this Greek Bible, you'll have uh, modern English uh, Bibles that use these texts uh, and, and make an English Bible out of it. Does that make sense? And so, uh, so when you look at a Bible, you want to look at manuscript, or one of the factors is manuscript reliability. Um, does the translation utilize the most reliable findings of the available, available Greek manuscript? Then the third is a translation type. What kind of translation uh, is your Bible? Is it a literal translation? We're going to talk about this in a little bit. Is it a paraphrase Bible? And um, I'll uh, let you know uh, what those, what that means in a, in a little bit. But you want to factor in uh, the translation type. Is it literal word for word or a paraphrase Bible? Uh, fourth one is translation readability. And that's something you also want to factor in. Is it dated English? Uh, do you need a dictionary uh, from the 1600s through the 1800s to understand the words? Um, these are some questions that you want to factor in as you choose uh, a Bible. So translation uh, readability, and, and I, I say this, and by the way, um, the, the Bible that I'm most familiar with is the King James Version of the Bible. That's what I grew up reading. Uh, now, uh, today, it's not the only Bible that I use, uh, um, but it is, is certainly still one of the Bibles that I use. So when I address some, uh, 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 let's say, weaknesses of the KJV, uh, I'm not attacking the KJV. What I'm attempting to do is provide a balance because we, th there are many who are involved in this movement to say that, you know, if you don't read the KJV or if you use another Bible, you can't be saved um, or, you know, you're going to be lost and, um, because it's not, the, it's not the true Bible, right? And, and I, I would differ personally from that that um, opinion. And I, I do have some, uh, I think, some solid arguments in defense of, of that stance. But Rick Wade says, says this in terms of translation readability. A significant problem with the KJV, of course, is the language. People who did not grow up using the KJV have a hard time understanding it. Some of its words are no longer in use, and the antiquated forms of many words impede the understanding of uh, the text. So a lot of times you'll read a word, interpret it based on how that word is understood today when the meaning is, is, is completely different from the current interpretation or current definition, I should say, of, of that word. So let's look a little bit about uh, this, this KJV only uh, debate. and. Um, once again, what I do want to say is this, and I, I'm qualifying here because I need to be very careful and be sensitive to where uh, people are at. And um, this is not 
uh, an attack on those who have the KJV only position. That is not the point uh, or purpose of this message uh, or this seminar, but simply to try and, and broaden the, the discussion in an intelligent manner so that we can uh, weigh all the pieces of evidence as we consider uh, this thing. So some considerations that we want to keep in mind. The conservative position, because you and I, uh, I, I consider myself a conservative, but just because a position is a conservative position doesn't necessarily mean that it's the correct position. Even conservative positions need to be validated and tested by a thus saith the Lord. And I think you and I would all uh, agree with that. The second uh, consideration as we enter this discussion is that conspiracy theories, you can see the, the UFO right here, uh, they abound on, on, uh, in a plethora of areas, but conspiracy theories should not be assumed as valid or true. Keep in mind, Adventists are not the only ones who believe uh, in conspiracy theories. The reason why conspiracy theories are so interesting and the reason why they're so un, the, the, the reason why it creates such a frenzy is because you never know what the truth really is. So when you get around the dinner discussion, it's fun to just talk about what could be, what should be, what could have happened, and who that spy was behind the other bush that shot JFK, and maybe there was someone on the building, and uh, maybe there were, uh, you know, these workers implanted, you know, uh, uh, TNT in, in, in the World Trade Centers, etc., etc., etc. None of it can actually be substantiated by hard evidence, but it's fun to, to talk about it sometimes. Although I don't, I don't really talk much about conspiracy theories, but, but that's something to keep in mind, that we are not the only ones who believe in them. So Erasmus and the KJV, if we're going to enter this discussion, we need to start with Erasmus and, uh, and move forward from there. Now he published the first printed Greek New Testament in the year 1516. And by the way, uh, uh, yeah, let me just go ahead and move forward. He relied on six manuscripts, a total of six manuscripts dating from the 11th to the 15th centuries. And these manuscripts were incomplete, as I'll uh, show you later. And by the way, we have, uh, he annotated, he wrote notes uh, on why he did some of the things that he did. So we can actually go back and double check uh, some of the reasons why he chose uh, to put certain words in or what was his justification in using the Vulgate in, in one instance versus the Greek man, manuscripts that he had available. We can go back and double check some of these things. And we do know that the manuscripts that he had were incomplete. He occasionally changed the Greek text based on the Latin uh, Vulgate. He, and, and I mentioned this, he annotated extensively. Um, 
he received criticism for omitting 1 John chapter 5, verses 7 through 8, that was found in the Vulgate, but not in his uh, Greek manuscript. And that's the verse that states, uh, for there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. So he was attacked for being an Arian, one who denies the the Godship of, of, of Jesus. Uh, later he did insert those verses in, but he did mention that he didn't believe that they should be. This is just some interesting facts. Uh, in 1522, oh, I mentioned that, kind of jumping uh, ahead of myself. In 10 plus instances, the specific Greek wording found in Erasmus's book of Revelation is found nowhere else in any manuscript of any kind in the world that we know of. Okay, so in t- ten plus instances, uh, there's some Greek wording there that is only uh, uh, found in his um, Greek text. Let me give you an example. The Textus Receptus, and this, this is his Greek uh, 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 text um, of the New Testament. He says, uh, the Textus Receptus reads, God shall take away his part out of the book of life. That's how his Greek text reads. No existing Greek manuscript of any family uses the wording uh, book of life. As a matter of fact, all the other manuscripts use the words tree of life. So which is more correct? The KJV, which uses the word book of life, where, which is not found in any single other Greek manuscript, or the tree of life, which is common to uh, most of the uh, or, or the other Greek manuscripts available to us. Erasmus had access, as we later find, had access to only one Greek manuscript of Revelation. And this Greek manuscript of Revelation did not include the last six verses. So he translated the Vulgate text of Revelation back into Greek, and therefore we get the Book of Life versus the tree of life. So the, the, the comment is made by, by um, textual scholars like this. Whoever considers the textus receptus, and, and that's his Greek um, Bible that he put together, to be the inspired original text of the New Testament, has to believe that the original Greek text of the New Testament was unknown until the year 1560, because that's when he, he inserted those words, and must accept the Catholic priest and humanist Erasmus as an inspired writer of the New Testament. So, Having said all that, let's look at uh, some of the pros of the KJV-only stance. And one of them is that the Reformers 
used the textus receptus. The reformers used the, the textus uh, receptus. But we want to keep in mind just because the reformers who we tend to see in a positive way, let's keep in mind that they also weren't perfect. Uh, you look at simply, uh, you look at uh, individuals like Calvin, for example, and his uh, doctrine of predestination, um, and, and a plethora of other false doctrines that many of the reformers held to. Just because we, that was the reformer's stance does not automatically uh, make it correct. Another argument that's raised is that the Textus Receptus was supernaturally and literally inspired and therefore inerrant. In other words, there are no mistakes there. Now, we have nowhere, not from the, the pen of Ellen White, no, one, no prophet who has ever stated, ever, that Erasmus's Textus Receptus uh, was inspired and the others were not. Those are assumptions that have been built over time. And many of them uh, on the basis of, of conspiratorial lines of, of reasoning. Three, the Textus Receptus was a text of the early Christians. Uh, that may be true, but what I want to say is this, that there is absolutely no proof uh, of that, the earliest citation we have of the Textus Receptus, or um, what, sh what I should say is that the text that, that Erasmus used came from a, a certain family of text, the, the, what's, what's called the Byzantine text or the Eastern text, uh, in contrast to the text that you find in uh, Alexandria, uh, or, or those that are that um, are often argued were influenced by by Rome or the papacy, uh, etc. Now, the texts that he used were from the the, the Byzantine or the Eastern uh, texts, and um, and so the claim is made here that the Textus Receptus was a text of the the early Christians. The earliest sighting we have of the Texas Receptus is from John Chrysostom, uh, who is dated in uh, 407. And so the, the Eastern text we have as early as the second century. And so they're much earlier. That doesn't necessarily mean they're more accurate. But to make the claim that this was, in fact, the text of the early Christians uh, cannot be substantiated in history when the the earliest copy we have of its citation is, is around the 400s uh, AD. Uh, the theological correctness of the Textus Receptus versus the Alexandrian uh, or, or the Western text. Um, you will find, if you do an honest study, that you, could, you can find uh, theological uh, errors or, or wording in, in uh, the Textus Receptus that could lead you to faulty uh, assumptions or conclusions uh, or doctrines, uh, as well as from the, the other side uh, uh, or the other position. So, so it's a misnomer to say 
that uh, only the Texas Receptus is theologically correct. Also, the uniformity of the Textus uh, Receptus. Uh, people say that there, it, it, it aligns together, that there's, uh, it's very much uniform. But if you actually look at the text uh, and compare and contrast them, there are many differences that do exist, uh, even in the Textus Receptus. So that's, that's not a, a very strong argument either. And by the way, Erasmus's uh, um, Greek version of the Bible also differs in, in many ways from the wider uh, um, pool that he himself drew from or the, from the family that those ma uh, manuscripts come from or are included in. And so there's even disagreements with, uh, within uh, with, with his text with the same school of texts that, that he derived his text from. Those, those few manuscripts. Six, the Textus Receptus constitutes the majority of all texts, 80%. Thus, it is the most uh, reliable. And, and I think this is, is also, um, it could be true, but I think we can't, we should uh, refrain from making an assumption just because it's the majority means that it's the most reliable. If we use that type of logic, then we should all, for example, join the Roman Catholic Church because they're uh, a majority. And so uh, I don't think it, we should jump to those conclusions because of that. The Jesuits in Rome were opposed to the Textus Receptus. That is true. But you also find in history a number of Protestant reformers who were also opposed to the Textus Receptus. So, uh, so that's uh, also something to consider as well. Uh, Bengel and, and uh, Tischendorf uh, criticized the Textus Receptus. Westcott and Hort, the forerunners of the modern editions, were spiritualists. And they're the ones that really compiled this first eclectic, compiled, composite Greek New Testament Bible that drew from a variety of manuscripts where they used some, some uh, principles to, to um, determine what, would, what was the most accurate uh, um, text or, or, uh, of the Bible. And so it's often argued that these forerunners of the modern editions were, were spiritualists. But um, if you search history, that also cannot be substantiated. So the KJV only, what are some of the cons? Well, first and foremost, the antiquated uh, English language. Um, you, you do need a separate dictionary uh, for the KJV word, so you're one step removed. And oftentimes, the assumption is made, especially if you see the KJV as, as being inspired in contrast to all other Bibles, you tend to see the, the very words as being God's words, and, and therefore, uh, and, and even more accurate or more inspired than the original words of Greek 
which was the original uh, writings of the New Testament. And that I, I, is, is a faulty assumption. It's also based on fewer than 10 Greek manuscripts, uh, a limited number that Erasmus had uh, in terms of Greek manuscripts that were available to him. And, uh, and I mentioned this early, the Textus Receptus versus the majority text. Uh, the Textus Receptus comes from the same, from this family, what we call the majority text or uh, the 80% of all Greek uh, texts available come from the majority text. And the Textus Receptus, those six manuscripts came from that family. But when you even compare and contrast his Greek uh, New Testament versus the wider family that he draws from, there are a lot of differences. And uh, that's something to keep in mind. How about Ellen White and the KJV only debate? Ellen White actually quoted from the 1901 version of the ERV or the English Revised Version and the ARV uh, or the ASV, which were both based off of the Westcott and Hort Greek test, text of the New Testament. So remember, the claim is made that they were spiritualists, and therefore we should not use their scripture. But, but we have historical citation that Ellen White quoted from the 1901 version uh, of, these, of these Bibles. Her son, W.C. White, purchased... Uh, a copy of the Revised Version, uh, which she used occasionally according to W.C. White. And W.C. White stated, by the way, W.C. White is her son, stated that Ellen White gave her secretary specific instructions to use a version that best reflected her ideas. Uh, the book Ministry of Healing, uh, published in 1905, employed 10 biblical texts from the ERV, more than 50 from the ARV, and a few from uh, other versions. So certainly Ellen White um, did not uh, have a stance against using these versions. Neither did God reveal anything explicitly to her in regards to these versions. So the conclusion uh, is to use a version that is as close to the Greek text as possible while being understandable to you. But whichever version you choose, be very sure of your arguments before insisting that others use it uh, too. It seems to me that with all the difficulties we face in our often hostile culture, we should not erect walls between Christians on the basis of Bible versions. We are not taking God's word lightly here. We are simply calling for a more well-reasoned discussion and for the rule of love to, to govern uh, the debate. And so again, I, I just want to say that this is not an attack on any individual who differs from me. I just want to provide some perspective to some of the arguments that are floating out there that we need to really reassess and think about these things before jumping uh, to conclusions uh, per se. Now translation types. There are a variety of translation types and you have paraphrased Bibles 
And, uh, and that's Bibles that are reworded using another author's own words. So, uh, so for example, you read something in Scripture, or, or you have a, a literal translation of, of, uh, of some words or a text in Scripture, and you want to modernize it to make it more relevant to us today. And so you change the words around to how you would think that it should come across. And those are examples of paraphrased Bibles. An example of paraphrased Bible uh, would be a message Bible, the clear word Bible, the, the new living translation Bible, the living Bible. So paraphrased Bibles are not Bibles that you would want to use in a hardcore Bible study. They're just, it would be of no use if you want to do a hardcore Bible study. Then you have dynamic equivalent or, or thought uh, translation uh, Bibles. And examples of that are the NIV and also the NEB. And these are thought for thought translations. Thought for thought translations. And the attempt here in these Bibles is to have the, the text produce the same effect as it would have had upon the original audience. So you're, you also restructure the text. And let me give you an example of that. The KJV, which is a literal translation, uh, would read, uh, Romans 16, uh, 4 would read, laying down one's neck. And sometimes there's these expressions that you find in the Bible that are no longer used today. So they'll, they'll alter the wording and, and translate it to how they would have taken it back then. And so laying down one's neck, uh, uh, according to the K, is what the KJV states. The NIV, which is a thought for thought translation, uh, states it as risking one's life. So laying down one's neck versus risking one's life, which is what it means. But again, you see that it's not a word-for-word equivalent. And then you have uh, formal or literal translations, and those are word-for-word. And so when it's, when it's really uh, strictly a word-for-word, they don't even... Uh, they won't even change the, the sentences around to make it more palatable for, for the English readers. Um, and how many of you have read like an interlinear Bible before? Where they just have the Greek and the English uh, equivalent on top or below, and it's just like, you know, it's hard to follow. And, uh, and, and that's, uh, that would be uh, the, the, the most literal translation that you could find out there. Now those types of scriptures or those types of Bibles are very helpful and very useful, especially in Bible studies. So when you look at Bible translations there, this gives you some sort of spectrum where you have word for word, like an interlinear Bible, the New American Standard Bible, uh, the, the English Standard Version, the KJV, and of course this is somewhat subject to interpretation, but all these Bibles uh, over here you could say are, are word for word or literal translations. These are kind of the, the moderate ones, the thought for thoughts, uh, or not the, the, the thought for thought, but the, uh, the, well yeah, the paraphrase there, and then you have um, the dynamic equivalent uh, in the middle. Whoops if that makes sense. 
So how many of you with this understanding would, would, you know, I tend to think that the best Bibles available are ones that are literal translations. You know, I, I, I at least want to know that when I'm reading a word in English, that there is an equivalent word in the Greek that man has not placed his own wording or his own thoughts uh, in place of those Greek words. And so I would highly suggest, if uh, my, my personal view is that if you're going to choose a Bible, choose a literal translation. Um, and, and that's what I stand by. Now, we're going to quickly go through the, uh, the authority of Scripture. Ellen White says this. She says, God will have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible and the Bible only as the standard of all doctrines and the basis of all reforms. The opinions of learned men, the deductions of science, the creed or decisions of ecclesiastical councils, the voice of the majority, not one nor all of these, should be regarded as evidence, as evidence for or against any point of religious faith. Before accepting any doctrine or precept, we should demand a plain, thus saith the Lord, in its support. So we're going to cover briefly here the authority of Scripture. Uh, many, Ellen White says in First Selective Messages, page 15, many, very many are questioning the verity and truth of the scriptures, especially today, we're seeing that much more. Human reasoning and the imaginings of the human heart are undermining the inspiration of the word of God. And that which should be received as granted is surrounded with a cloud of mysticism. Nothing stands out in clear and distinct lines upon rock bottom. This is one of the marked signs of the last days. How many of you believe we are living in the last days? Uh, we certainly are. So the authority of Scripture, let's see what Scripture has to say about itself uh, in relation to Scripture. Uh, Paul puts it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 3.16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That Greek word there, if translated literally, is God breathed. So all scripture is God breathed, if you will. Meaning that, that God, God's spirit, God's had a, had a hand in the production of scripture. It's profitable, therefore, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. In righteousness, Jesus in Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 27, and also verses 44 through 45, uh, Jesus has some insightful things in terms of how he viewed the authority of scriptures. Um, by the way, when Jesus was trying, attempted to prove that he was a Messiah to the two disciples on their walk to Emmaus, how did he do it? Did he say, watch this, um, let there be a dog right here. Boom, dog. See, I am the Messiah. Is that, is that what uh, he employed is, is, is a show, to show his, his divinity? Notice what, what Luke 24 says. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, 
expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He actually had a Bible study to prove and validate himself as the Messiah. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms uh, concerning me. So Jesus used scripture, not signs and wonders, to substantiate his identity as the Messiah. The other thing that we can also draw and assume here is that when it says that he expounded to them in all the scriptures, what we can safely assume there is that they had uh, at that time when scripture was written the an authoritative body of text that they termed scripture that they uh, that they assumed to be authoritative. And so so even very early on, we have this notion of canon, uh, or of the canon, this authoritative body of works that people that that Jesus himself deemed as being inspired. And, and by the way, this grouping here, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms, the Old Testament is divided into three. And uh, you had the the Law of Moses, you had the Prophets, and and the Psalms or the writings. And, uh, and those uh, three divisions included the, uh, the entire Old Testament, the same Old Testament that we have today. And that's validated uh, through the, the words of Josephus um, uh, of antiquity. How about scribal and copyist errors? Now, by the way, as you know, we don't have the autographs, or meaning the original uh, copy of of, of the Bible uh, writers or the prophets, the works. And so we have copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies, right? That have been handed down from generation to generation. So is there the possibility that the scripture that we have today is not you know, the same words that were originally written? Word, is, is there potential for scribal and copyist errors? Did God protect the, the copying of scripture over the centuries and over the years? That's a legitimate question. It's a legitimate question because you have individuals like Bart Ehrman. He graduated, or I graduated from uh, the school that he teaches at, the University of North Carolina. He says this, he's a New Testament scholar, very, very, he's an atheist, he doesn't believe in God. And, uh, and, you know, by the way, you can be a theologian and be an atheist. Uh, and so I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but, but uh, you, he is, he's a theologian. Notice what he says. He says, given the circumstance that God didn't preserve the words, the conclusion seemed inescapable to me that he hadn't gone to the trouble of inspiring them. So he looks at all the, the plethora of Greek texts, because that's what he does. Uh, he's a Greek scholar. And so he looks at that, all the variations, and then he jumps to this conclusion that, hey, right, God didn't, didn't seem like, doesn't seem like God took the time to preserve the words, because there's so many differences in, in all these texts. So, so, you know, if, if there, there are all these differences, then, well, I, I must conclude that he hasn't gone through the trouble of inspiring the words, if, uh, if he didn't uh, go, go through the trouble of, of uh, maintaining the, the accuracy 
during the copy process, copying process. What does Ellen White say about this? Have you ever read any anything uh, that Ellen White has to say about scribal and copyist errors that may have been introduced in scripture? Ellen White actually says some insightful things about it. She says, possibly, I saw that God had especially guarded the Bible, yet when copies of it were few, learned men had in some instances changed the words, thinking that they were making it more plain, when in reality they were mystifying that which was plain by causing it to lean to their established views, which were governed by tradition. And by the way, when we're looking at these differences of the, the Greek New Testament, none of them are life-changing. None of them are eradicating the fundamental truths and doctrines that we have today. A lot of times they're just in terms of little tenses, uh, little words or a prone, uh, instead of uh, Jesus, it, it, there's a pronoun uh, with the words he. Uh, instead, little minor differences like that that actually change nothing in terms of truth and doctrine. But he jumps to, uh, Bart Ehrman jumps to these conclusions based on these small minor uh, differences that we see in these texts. This is what Ellen White has to say about that. And she goes on further. Some look to us gravely and say, don't you think there might have been some mistake in the copyist or in the translators? This is all probable, Ellen White admits. And the mind that is so narrow that it will hesitate and stumble over this possibility or probability would be just as ready to stumble over the mysteries of the inspired word because their feeble minds cannot see through the purposes of God. All the mistakes will not cause trouble to one soul or cause any feat to stumble. That's first selected messages, page 16. Furthermore, she goes on, both in the Battle Creek and, and, and speaking of this, you know, so you may say, well, maybe some portions of scripture then are inspired and, and others are not. Um, and, and maybe, you know, Song of Solomon, that's a little bit too PG or rated R, maybe we should just, you know, that, that was uh, inserted by man. This, notice what Ellen White has to say. She says, both in the Battle Creek Tabernacle and in the college, the subject of inspiration has been taught, and finite men have taken it upon themselves to say that some things in the scriptures were inspired and some were not. When men venture to criticize the word of God, they venture on sacred holy ground and had better fear and tremble and hide their wisdom as foolishness. God sets no man to pronounce judgment on his word, selecting some things as inspired and discrediting others as uninspired. The testimonies, meaning her writings, have been treated in the same way, but God is not in this. Letter 22, uh, 1889. So Ellen White and the trustworthiness of Scripture, she said, the Lord has preserved this holy book by his own miraculous power in his present shape. Are you glad that the Lord oversaw the production process of Scripture? 
a chart or guidebook to the human family to show them the way to heaven. The Bible is the most ancient and the most comprehensive history that men possess. It came fresh from the fountain of eternal truth, and throughout the ages, a divine hand has preserved its purity. At the last uh, little topic here that we're going to uh, finish our discussion today is on revelation and inspiration. And those are theological terms. Let me define them for you briefly. Revelation refers to the ways that God placed the contents of Scripture from himself into the mind of the, pro, uh, of the apostles. That's what we mean by uh, this technical term, revelation, as, as I'm going to define it and use it here. Inspiration, on the other hand, refers to the way God brought the contents of Scripture from the mind of the prophet into a written a document. Okay? So, some text that shed some light on this is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19, 19 through 21. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved. That Greek word, uh, therefore moved, means carried along or to bear, or drive, or, or lead. They were led, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So there's a couple things that, that we can draw from this text here. Number one, that the source of Scripture is not from man. It did not derive from man, nor did it derive from any decisions that men made. The writers wrote as they were reacting uh, to the Holy Spirit. Okay? Furthermore, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, the Bible reads, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And, of course, we looked at that earlier. Uh, Theopneustos means God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and in instruction in righteousness. So when, it, when we mean, what we mean by God breathed uh, is that all of Scripture finds its origin from God, that God had an influence or a hand in the formulation of Scripture. And of course, Hebrews chapter 1 uh, verses 1 through 2, God who at various times and in various ways, He spoke to the fathers through the prophets or by the prophets and, and in these last days has spoken to us by his son. So this text clearly tells us that God speaks to us through the writings of the prophets in addition to all the, all the other various ways that, that God can speak uh, to humanity. So how was the Bible written? 
What does it mean that they were moved by the Holy Ghost? What does that mean? They were moved by the Holy Ghost. Does that mean, um, and I'm going to make reference to a, uh, a movie I saw years ago just to illustrate this point. And um, there's a movie called Liar, Liar and uh, with Jim Carrey. And he made, uh, his, his son made this, I don't know, a, a, a um, birthday wish that his father would never be able to lie. And so all of a sudden, Jim Carrey couldn't lie. And so, so there's this one scene, and this is the point I'm trying to make here. He tried to write a lie. Right, and so he, the pen was like red or blue or something. So he wanted to write uh, the color of this pen is blue when it was red, and and so as he was writing it, he could not write what was error or was a lie, and so he ended up writing the truth, and he ended up writing it all over his face, and he wrote it everywhere, and, and so uh, the, the point that I'm trying to make is some people have this notion that the Bible was written in the same way, that God grabbed the, the hand of that writer and, and started writing the, the very words of God, and therefore, and thus, we have the word of God. Do you think that's true, by the way? I see some yeses. I see some noes. How do you think God, when we're looking at inspiration, how did the words... Uh, how were the words written from the pen of the person of the prophet and, and, and onto paper? What how, how, did God play a passive role? Did He play a a a, uh, a more aggressive role in the production of Scripture? <clears throat> there are three broad views of inspiration. The first, the one that I've just described, is what we call mechanical or dictation uh, inspiration. And this is the notion that the Holy Spirit dictated every word of Scripture. Every word of Scripture. So that the words themselves are God's words. And, in, and, and they are God's words, by the way. So the emphasis is God's role. And the human role is minimized with the, in, in this viewpoint. Or, or even not, the human role is non-existent. That God had total and absolute control uh, in the writing of the content of Scripture. The human was merely, you know, just going as the Spirit leads, if you will. God was an irresistible, sovereign influence. And... Um, that's the first view. The second view is the exact opposite of, of the di dictation stance. And that is that there was no impartation from God whatsoever in the production of Scripture. That not a single word or even not a single thought in the Bible came or derived from God. That the entire content of Scripture uh, was humanly devised. So written scripture represents the thoughts, words, and culture 
of the prophets, not God. That's encounter uh, revelation or inspiration. Then we have, um, and by the way, many Adventists adopt to the verbal uh, or have have adopted over over the years and especially conservative Adventism has adopted uh, ver- verbal or dictation, uh, a verbal, a verbal or dictation view of inspiration. And even though they've never heard a, a lecture on it or a seminar on it, that's just what they assume. What about thought inspiration? And that's the notion that God inspired the thoughts of the prophets. He did not dictate the words. And this is more of a uh, the middle uh, position. And it's also the position that I personally take. If you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, let me give you an example of why, uh, one example, there's going to be many others, but uh, or a few others, but I want us to um, go there, if you have your Bibles, if not, I'm going to go ahead and read it as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, obviously Paul is writing a letter uh, to the Corinthians, and, um, and where did he uh, derive the, the words of, of what has become scripture, which was originally a letter. Um, he says in verse 10, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you. There were divisions in the church of Corinth. But that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Verse 11, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say that each of you say that I'm of Paul, and others saying I'm of Apollos, of, of Cephas, and I am of Christ. So he goes on to describe this division. Now, where did, where did Paul get his information about these divisions? He he states it himself that he, he got it from Chloe's household. And therefore, he's writing and addressing this issue from information he obtained from humans, right? And he's writing about it. And this book has now, uh, uh, is now part of, of our canon uh, of Scripture. And so this, this verse here, although it does not provide absolute proof of thought inspiration, at least it opens the, the door to a position outside of a verbal dictation inspiration that God said, uh, for it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, right? Uh, by those of Chloe's household. It's hard to imagine that the Holy Spirit was dictating those words when those uh, are the things that that are are more personal or more uh, related to Paul and his personal experience. But I want us to read, let me just make it absolutely clear from the pen of inspiration, from the words of Ellen White herself, who herself was a prophet, in First Selected Messages, page 21. It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired. Now, if I took those words and put Bart Ehrman on the bottom, you, you, it would take it on a different slant. But you know that she's going to qualify this statement. 
So she says, it is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men that were inspired. Inspiration acts not on the man's words or his expressions, but on the man himself, who, under the influence of the Holy Ghost, is imbued with thoughts. Nevertheless, the words receive the impress of the individual mind. The divine mind is diffused. The divine mind and will is combined with the human mind and will. Thus, the utterances of the man are the word of God. If you assume verbal dictation, then you could not open the door, meaning God wrote every single word. Then you could not uh, account for the fact that some Greek of some authors in Scripture is, are actually more advanced than other Greek writers of the Bible. You, it could not account for the, the differing personalities that come out in Scripture if you hold to a verbal uh, inspiration uh, viewpoint uh, uh, for the production of Scripture. And Ellen White herself, when she wrote these letters, which we believe are inspired of God, right? When she wrote these letters to Brother J or Brother F, I saw in a night vision, she would not... Uh, it would be a lie for her to say that she wrote it if it was the Holy Spirit who grabbed her hand and began writing those words. So God, uh, so keep this uh, in mind, but there's more. Notice what she says in the same book, page 21. The Bible is written by inspired men, but it is not God's mode of thought and expression. In other words, if God were to express it, uh, those same thoughts, it would have been infinitely much more profound, right? Uh, it would have been heavenly language. It would have been, it, we would have just read it. Uh, and, and by the way, perhaps English words cannot even express the things of God in its true sense. So those are things that we have to keep in mind. The Bible is written by inspired men, but it is not God's mode of thought and expression. It is that of humanity. God, and, and listen to this, God as a writer is not represented as a writer. He is the author, but not the writer. Men will often say such an expression is not like God. However, God has not put himself in words, in logic, in rhetoric, on trial in the Bible. The writers of the Bible were God's penmen, not his pen. The writers of the Bible were God's penmen, not his pen. Is that making sense? Is this... Uh, kind of uh, revelational uh, to you. Um, and, and I think it's important for us to understand this. So uh, looking at thought inspiration, the fact that God inspired the thoughts of the prophets, that he didn't dictate each word, divine thoughts then were adapted 
to the limitations and imperfections of the human agent. If it were not so, there could be no grammatical errors because God can't make any gr grammatical errors. If you take on this position, the position that Ellen White herself takes, then you can have mistakes, grammatical mistakes. I'm not talking about errors in truth and doctrine, but I'm talking about minor, insignificant, grammatical mistakes. You can account for this if you take on the position of thought inspiration. You cannot with verbal inspiration because God cannot make mistakes. He doesn't make mistakes. And in closing, um, someone who has written a lot about this, he's an Adventist, a conservative uh, Adventist scholar at, at Andrew Seminary. He has spent a lot of time thinking about these things, and I want to close with a statement uh, from him. The Holy Spirit's guidance did not overrule the thinking and the writing process of the biblical writers. And, and by the way, let me make a, a, a small uh, application here. When you become a Christian, Sometimes we have this conception that when, when, when we're converted, that we, we have this kind of verbal dictation viewpoint of how we're going to be Christians. Like this force, right? Like you see in Star Wars, is this going to, you know, make you perfect, right? And uh, we, we must understand that God does not work that way. And, and it's very key that we understand this because once you begin to think that God overrules your own ability to choose and think for yourself, it's going to be a long road to, to misery and, uh, and, and, a, and a, a very hard, difficult experience with, with, with Christianity. God influences your thoughts and we react to it as we make choices and decisions based on God's molding influence of the Holy Spirit. Yes, it is true, God, uh, God does ask of us to give Him His will. Ellen White also says that He sanctifies it and returns it back to you so that you and I, through the influence of the Holy Spirit and, and God, as He has altered and changed our life, uh, we can walk in newness of life while yet retaining our own ability uh, to choose and make decisions for ourselves. The Holy Spirit's guidance did not overrule the thinking and the writing process of biblical writers, but supervised the process of writing in order to maximize clarity of ideas and to prevent, if necessary, the distortion of revelation or changing divine truth into a lie. Yes, God... Uh, God's Spirit was there, influencing. In fact, maybe perhaps overriding, where, where the author may have had some errors, uh, uh, or, or perhaps were thinking something that, that may have been uh, uh, faulty, if you could even say that. Uh, in other words, we should not conceive of the continuous guidance of the Holy Spirit in the process of writing as continuous divine intervention and, let me, and he qualifies that in the sense that he caused the choice of every thought and word in Scripture. 
Instead, we should consider a less intrusive pattern of inspiration, one that's more consistent with the freedom of the human writers as he was influenced and interacted with uh, the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? And uh, um, that this this truth, because I believe it is a truth, um, will have an impact on how you view Scripture, and I think in a positive way, and um, and uh, help us to to understand Scripture more clearly as we read it. Well, let's go ahead and close uh, with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, being with us throughout today. And we pray that you'll continue to guide and lead uh, all the meetings throughout WIC. And uh, we thank you, Lord. We ask this in your name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.